Would you turn to Mark 14 and verses 12 to 16? We will continue hammering through and uh, moving forward with the Gospel of Mark. We want to, um, as much as we do love the Gospel of Mark, we want to bring it to an end so we can see what the Lord has for us in another um, uh, epistle, perhaps, or another Gospel that we would see God's desire and will in our lives. Mark 14, verses 12 to 16. And it reads, On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And when he, and, and he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, small as this passage may look, but there is so much beneath this that is really exciting to unravel and explain and understand. And I pray that your Brains are switched on this morning uh, because we're going to go a little bit technical in understanding a lot of fascinating things. And when I, I trust that at the end of it, we will enjoy Christ all the more in a lot of what we're going to learn. Now, just a, um, just a way of review in general, uh, review the Gospel of Mark displays Jesus as a servant king. The servant king, the one who lays down his own life is the same one who is the giver of life. And so how the gospel of Mark is broken down in a general sense is that in the first 10 chapters, they're mostly showing Jesus as a suffering servant. Yeah, you find Jesus always on his toes from this city to this city, town to town, village to village. And, uh, he, he's here teaching. He's over there feeding and, uh, over the mountain, uh, he's healing and he's always relentless in giving his whole body in order to attend to everyone's need, even to the point of exhaustion. So. It shows us that Jesus is that humble servant uh, always placing other people's interest above his. He lays low in order to lift others up. So you find his sleep is interrupted in order to help his disciples. Or his stomach is empty because he's too busy feeding the multitudes. And that's the first 10 chapters in a nutshell. Then you come to the uh, uh, next six chapters of the Gospel of Mark, and they're mostly showing Jesus as the majestic king, 
majestic king. So you find, for example, his triumphal entry as to say that Jesus is the rightful heir over the Davidic throne. And then he moves into the temple. And what does he do? He cleanses the temple as to say that he is the defender of his kingdom. He functions as the God divine governor, if you like, the official governor who determines and regulates how his father is to be worshipped. And then in the Q&As between Jesus and the religious leaders, it shows that Jesus is supreme in his authority. And even when we move to uh, Mark 13, where Jesus begins to prophesy about the end times, it reveals to us that Jesus is the great prophet. Well, all of these, and now we move to Mark chapter 14. And we find a challenge in Mark 14. Jesus' death is fast approaching. And earlier on at the start of Mark 14, we saw how uh, the chief priests have, in their standpoint, showed how their evil, wicked plan to kill the Messiah is unfolding. Then Judas, the betrayer, he's waiting for the right moment to hand Jesus over. And so as hell is caving into Jesus to murder the Son of God, you can just imagine the first readers of the Gospel of Mark, namely the Christian Romans at that time. Their minds will be boggled. It's crazy. What's going on now? Uh, this evil plan of the religious and the scribes are now about to set in motion. And then they would, their peace would be disturbed. Because does that mean that Jesus' life is now at the mercy of evil people? Is the mortal man now, does he have the final say about Jesus' death, the immortal Son of God. So just who is it that has his index finger on the red button over Jesus' destiny? Now, this is something that is very, very important to know. Huge question that has to be answered properly because if it was that mere uh, frail men who are so weak in many ways, who have the final say about Jesus' life and death, then what kind of puny savior is Jesus? Right? And if Jesus had no control over his destiny, then what hope do we have? Somehow he has control over our own destiny. And if Jesus doesn't, then we are doomed. And out of all people, we would be the most pitiful, right? We might as well go and have fun and be married. For today we live and tomorrow we die. And so Mark inserts this text right here as to say that even in the midst of Jesus' betrayal and while evil people are preparing to execute the Son of God, yes, as the scripture does say that Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. Absolutely. 
But yet at the same time, he remains to be sovereign. And as we approach the trials and the punishment of Christ, his majesty and his control, as we're going to see through the next few chapters, they're not diminishing. They're enlarging. That his power is not fading away, it is flourishing. It is not decreasing, it is increasing. John MacArthur comments on this and he says, Through man's ultimate act of sinful depravity, God accomplished his ultimate act of righteous redemption. And this text that we're going to see today will show us that Jesus is always Always, he has his index finger on that red button, not just over his own destiny, but our destinies. So fear not, brothers, sisters, fear not. This same Savior, who is full of love for you, is always in charge of his universe. It's only the the pierced hands of our Savior Jesus that holds the steering wheel and is gripping it tightly. The steering wheel of his life, the life of his people, and even the lives of his own enemies. And he's navigating his lives through the course of life to the destination that he himself desires. No one else, his desire will be fulfilled. Judah's desire has never ever been that he would end up in hell. Right? And the religious leaders, their desires have never ever been to be held accountable before God on that judgment day. Jesus' desire is the only desire that will be fulfilled. He has authority. And in this passage, we're going to break it down into three aspects. Jesus has authority over our redemption. And we're going to marvelous and see how this is in this passage. And then the second is Jesus has all authority over life. And then Jesus has authority over history. And I am sure it will fascinate you as much as it fascinated me. But I will start with this. Jesus has authority over redemption. So in verse 12, it reads, On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb, was being sacrificed. So the Passover, once again, we looked at it before a few weeks earlier. The Passover was one of the most important uh, Jewish feasts. It was observed to remind the Jewish people of how God delivered them from the tyranny of Egypt. And how it was celebrated at the time of Jesus, it was like this. Every Jewish family would uh, get a lamb without blemish. And do you know when they would get this bl- lamb? They would get this lamb on Monday, Passion Week. Right? Monday Passion Week is when they go, buy the lamb, and then they would keep it for four days. And then on that fourth day, they would offer it to the priests so that the priests uh, in the temple on the altar would slaughter this lamb. Four days, just enough to um, for that lamb to be their companion, mind you. And then that lamb would be killed, and then they would bring it back home, roast it in fire, and then they would have a wonderful feast together as a family. And every year, uh, these Jewish people would be reminded of how the angel of death passed over. That's why it's called Passover feast, right? 
pass over the homes that were sprinkled by the blood of the lamb. And mind you, um, the tradition of, of the Jewish people at that time would say when they sit around the table to um, eat the lamb, they would pick the youngest person in, in, in that gathering and the youngest person would, would ask a question like saying, why are we having this feast? And then somebody, and I'm paraphrasing here, would respond and would say, ah, because our God has delivered our forefathers from the tyranny of Egypt. He's delivered us. He redeemed us from our enslavery. Now, that's a Passover. What about the unleavened bread? Well, if you recall and if you've read Exodus, you would find this unleavened bread. This, the, ne- the very next day after the Passover at the crack of dawn, the Israelites would quickly flee from Egypt. They were in a rush so much that uh, when they came to uh, prepare their breakfast, their bread, because the bread is prepared in the breakfast in, uh, early in the morning, um, they didn't even have time to put yeast in that bread. And so what do they do? They baked it without this yeast, without leaven, leaven's yeast. Leaven, uh, by the way, uh, symbolizes the influence later on. Uh, then I would learn that this is the case. And on the hill of celebrating the Passover, uh, there you have God commanding the people of Israel uh, to have seven days of a feast called the unleavened um, bread feast. So in total, how many days it would be? Eight days. One day for the Passover and seven days for the unleavened bread. And because of how the Passover was totally connected to that feast of unleavened bread, um, Jewish at the time of Jesus, they will combine uh, the two feasts together and they just simply call it the Passover feast. And you'll find that across the scripture, by the way. And it's estimated at that time, the Passover feast, that there would be 250,000 lambs that would be slaughtered. And furthermore, we need to understand this, uh, the the passage would um, make sense to us. Furthermore, uh, if you would uh, read later on in your own time, Exodus 12, verse 6, you will find that all these lambs must be slaughtered at twilight. Now, what does twilight mean? Literally, in, the, in, in the Hebrew, it would mean between two evenings. So they have two evenings, um, uh, the, Jewish, the Jewish people. And Josephus, the historian, would tell us uh, this is between uh, something about uh, 2 p.m. and 5 p.m. So kind of like two or three hours or so. And that would be the time when all the lambs would be slaughtered. So that means the priest would have about two hours to slaughter 250,000 lambs. Can you imagine the, the enormous amount of blood that would be poured out? And because it was sitting on a temple mount, that's why they call it temple mount, because the temple is there, and then on the altar as they're sacrificing this huge amount of lambs, There'll be so much blood and it would take days, if not even weeks, for the blood to drain down the temple and into the surrounding valleys. People would look into this, into these rivers of red, warm blood. 
gushing out of the temple and streaming down. And they would say, yes, we get it. It reminds, this Passover reminds us of how God delivered us from Egypt. But why so much blood? Why fire? Why roasted lamb? What's up with all of that? Colossians 2.16 and 17 answers this question for us. It says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to him, to Christ. This Passover feast was nothing more than black, empty vacuum, no more than just an idea of redemption, but the real substance is Christ. The book of Hebrews tell us that not all the blood of all the lambs and the goats of all ages that were sacrificed can wipe away even one sin, one sin that is committed against the holy God. But the real blood that is able to wash away all sins of all people across all ages is the blood of Christ. J.C. Ryle comments on this and he says, Did the Passover remind the Jew that none of his forefathers were safe from the destroying angels in the night when he slew the firstborn unless he actually ate of the slain lamb? Because you know what? You have to eat of the slain lamb in order for you to be spared for your life to be spared and the life of your firstborn son to be spared that it was. No doubt it did. But it was meant to guide his mind to the far higher lesson that all who would receive benefit from Christ's atonement must actually feed upon him by faith and receive him into their hearts. Did the Passover feast remind people of God's deliverance from Egypt? Absolutely. But it was only ever also to point to something, a greater deliverance that is to come in Christ. Let us not forget, brothers, that the altar on which the lambs were sacrificed pointed to a greater altar, and that is the cross. And the unblemished lambs point to the sinless Christ, the roasted in fire, pointed to the outpouring of God's wrath that Jesus absorbed in himself on behalf of sinners. The eating of the lamb is the receiving of Christ by faith. Friends, sinners, are you hungry to be saved? You've got to receive Christ. You've got to eat this lamb. He is the sweetest and the satisfying 
redeemer there is. What does it mean to eat him now? It's to believe in him, to come to him, to hide in him. Now, while evil people were preparing for the most evil crime in all of human history, and that is to killing, the killing of the Son of God, we find that even in these feasts, in reality, for thousands of years, it was actually God that was preparing for the ultimate sacrifice that took away the sin of the world. Amazing. These feasts did not come in the mind of Judas and the religious leaders. It, it was already in the mind of God thousands of years before Judas was born. God has always been preparing for this sacrifice. You see, Jesus has authority over his redemption, over, over our redemption, I'm sorry. Amen? Jesus has authority over redemption. The second point is Jesus has authority over life. Now in verse 12, again, let's read it. It says, on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. So um, uh, let's now look a bit deeper into this. This must have been Thursday morning. Thursday morning. Why? Because the passage, the verse continues on. He says, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Meaning the, the Passover wasn't prepared yet. And um, it used to take so long to prepare for the Passover meal. Why? Because first, um, uh, people had to go to the marketplace and they had to buy wine, herbs, and um, unleavened bread, of course, as we read earlier, uh, for the meal. And then they had to take the lamb that they bought on Monday morning or Monday sometime from Bethany where they stayed. Uh, at the house of uh, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And then uh, they would take this lamb, they go down the Mount of Olives, across the valley, and then they climb the Temple Mount, enter into the temple, and then what do they do? What do they have to do? They have to line up in that queue of thousands of people waiting for their turn so that the priest would take this lamb and and sacrifice at the altar. So um, it would have taken a long time. So that's why I think it would have been in the morning, Thursday morning. Now, it says there, um, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So meaning that not only... Uh, uh, they were not even ready uh, for the Passover meal and they need, needed to be prepared, but they didn't even know where to prepare it, right? Where do you want us to go? So one other important factor that we need to understand that it's being commanded upon these Jewish people if they would be um, uh, celebrating the Passover and eating the meal, it has to be within Jerusalem. Bethany was outside of Jerusalem, all right? It was the next town. It wasn't Jerusalem. And Jews used to travel to Jerusalem from all corners of Israel so that they would celebrate this feast. And obviously, you can just imagine they would have to pay uh, a premium price to hire a room overnight 
so they can celebrate this feast. It was a, a high peak season, if you like. It was almost like, uh, you know, if you want to go to Gold Coast during the schoolies time. All right, there's hardly any vacancy. So now the disciples are asking Jesus, Jesus, what do we do? Do you have a plan? What, where do we go? And verse 13, it says, and he sent two of his disciples. Now in Luke 22, 8, it actually tells us who these two disciples were. They were Peter and John. And then said to him, he said to them, so Jesus said to Peter and John, Go into the city. Well, okay, we know which city it was. It was Jerusalem. And then it says there, and a man will meet you. Well, that's kind of helpful. Um, There were millions of of men at that time in Jerusalem. All right, they were filling up all the streets. So what do you mean, Jesus, um, that a man will meet us? Which man? And to make it even more interesting, in Matthew 26, the corresponding passage in Matthew, in verse 18, it's, Jesus says, a certain man. And this word certain, it's the only place it's used in the, in the, in the Bible. And literally, it actually means in today's uh, language, somebody, somebody will meet you. Mr. So-and-so will meet you. Mr. Joe, Joe Blow will meet you. So Jesus here is intentionally indefinite about the person that is going to meet the disciples. Well, okay. Can you give us a better clue, Jesus? I mean, we need to know who this Mr. Somebody is, right? Well, well, give us a sign or something. And so Jesus continues and says basically that this somebody will be what? Carrying a pitcher of water. Oh, great. Pitcher of water. That's going to help for, right? I mean, now not only are we going to look for uh, uh, Mr. Joe, Mr. Somebody, um, but somebody who's walking around carrying a water pot. Now, how common was this? It wasn't very common, by the way. Do you know who usually carried the water pots at the time of Jesus? Do you, do you remember um, um, the Gospel of John chapter 4? Um, who was at the well that was uh, carrying water, that was getting water out of the well? It was a woman, it was a Samaritan woman. And that's exactly right. It was a woman's job at that time. So uh, for a man to carry a water pot at the time of Jesus, it would have been very unusual, very uncommon. It would be as common as men 50 years ago, not now, uh, wearing high heels or having lipstick. Sad it's not the case today, but it would have been at the time very unusual for a man to carry a, a, a water pot. It would have been a slave for sure, no doubt, because it was kind of awkward for a man to carry this kind of thing. So this man, he would have stood out. Was it hard to find him? Absolutely, it would have been hard. But was it impossible? No, it wasn't impossible. And then when you find this person, this man, what do you do? It says, follow him. And in verse 14, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Okay. Fair enough. But the question that is leaping out of the pages in the scripture, particularly in this passage, 
Why the secrecy? Why? Why do you make it so ambiguous and abstract, Jesus? For example, like why wouldn't Jesus say to Peter and John, hey, Peter and John, uh, do you remember Bartimaeus, the guy, the blind guy that we just healed earlier? Just go follow him. Or remember um, Mr. David who came and had a chat with us? Go find him. Why not? Or, or perhaps say to them, hey, here is the address where you should go. Uh, Solomon Street in the second floor in your left side. You'll find a room. This is where you go. Make it more specific. Why? Is it because Jesus didn't know the place? Absolutely not. So why? Why not be more definitive? Why did Jesus make it look like a treasure hunt game? You know, meet a guy, and then that guy that you meet, he will take you to another guy, and that second guy that you're going to meet will take you to a room somewhere, and it's in the upper room that's going to be prepared. Well, it's like a treasure hunt game. What's going on? The answer is very simple. You know what it is? Two words. Judas Iscariot. While you're in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, have a look just that one verse before this passage. So we can understand it in context. It says, they were glad. They, who were they glad? Who, who was it that glad, that were glad? It was the, uh, um, the religious leaders. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him, Judas Iscariot, money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Right? So after Judas, um, cut a deal with the religious leaders and he now switched sides. He's a, he's a double agent, right? He's now watching Jesus like a hawk. He's looking for that perfect opportunity to whistle to the soldiers so they would march on and capture Jesus. And if you think about it, celebrating a Passover uh, meal in such a uh, secluded place, a private place away from the crowd, it would have been the perfect opportunity for Judas to betray Jesus, right? And Judas would have thought, bingo, uh, let's get him. Let's give, let's give the local authorities the GPS coordinates of Jesus and they will go and they capture him and, and I'll be 30 pieces of silver richer, right? No problem. But Judas, listen, there's a slight problem. I want you to turn to um, Luke 22, verse 15. That's the parallel uh, passage in the Gospel of Luke. I want you to see something very interesting. Slight problem in that plan that Judas now having to consider. In verse 15, it says, He said to them, that's Jesus said to the disciples, I have what? Earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus made it very clear. He didn't want to be delivered at the Passover meal, right? He didn't want that. And guess what? Because Jesus didn't want it, it's not going to happen. Not going to happen. So what did Jesus do? He sent Peter and John on a treasure hunt game. Right? 
so that they would find the place where the Passover meal will be prepared. And now we'll prepare it. They will prepare the meal, which Jesus earnestly desired to have. And it will not be before this evening that the, the rest of the disciples, the 10 other disciples, along with Jesus, that will meet Peter and John in that location. And so Judas will have no chance in hell to hand over Jesus one day earlier or one day later than God divine appointed time. Jesus died precisely when Jesus wanted to die. Not Judas or the religious leaders. Amen. In fact, in John 10, 17, it says, for this reason, the father loves me. Why? Pay attention to what Jesus says. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. Judas did not take Jesus' life away from Jesus, right? But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Amen. Jesus has absolute authority over his life and your life and the life of everyone around you. Not only does he have authority over his life in that he died according to his own initiative, but he has authority to take it up again. That's beautiful. It's beautiful to know. It's wonderful to know that Jesus has this authority over death. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Why? Why would we fear COVID? Why would we fear being infected? Why would we fear governor's authority in this matter? Jesus has the final say over our lives, just like he had the final say over his own. Now, I want to show you something even more brilliant than that, I think. It's beautiful. I'm going to show you how, just how incomprehensible God, God's control over history. So the third point is Jesus has authority over the course of, of history. This is where you need to switch your brain just a little bit more. I know it's a bit too early in the morning, but it's just we're almost there. When did Jesus have the Passover meal? Well, we'll continue on reading 14 and 15. It says, and where, wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, prepare, prepare for us there. Preparing what? Prepare the meal. So Jesus observed the Passover meal the very same evening when he dispatched Peter and John on that same day in the morning. In fact, if you just look at verse 17 quickly, you will find that it does say evening, this evening. It was Thursday evening when Jesus went into this upper room, right? Clear? So the, the lamb was slaughtered at twilight. And then after that, immediately after that, they would have to go somewhere, take this lamb, roast it, eat it. Thursday night. Uh, sorry, Thursday evening, right? How come? 
in John 18 verse 28 basically tells us that not until the next day uh, the Passover lamb was killed, which is Friday. Uh, let me read it to you. John 18, 28. Then they, the religious leaders, let Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And when you read it carefully, this early speaks of Friday early morning. Way after Jesus had his Passover meal. And it was after Jesus prayed his prayer. So he celebrates, so Jesus celebrated the Passover meal, meaning he slaughtered the lamb at the temple by priests, because these were the only ones that would uh, slaughter the lamb, and then take the lamb and eat it by Thursday evening. And yet now, Friday morning, and it tells us that these religious leaders, let's continue, and says, and they themselves, as the religious leaders, did not enter into the praetorium, uh, praetorium, so that they would not be defiled. Why? But might eat the Passover. Friday morning, and they haven't yet eaten the Passover, which means that the, the lamb was not yet killed. Because it's commanded by God that the lamb would be killed at twilight. Now, why is that? Is it because the Jewish people, the religious leaders, when they slaughtered the lamb, they were too busy slaughtering lambs on Thursday evening that they didn't have time to eat their own lamb and then therefore they, they had to sacrifice it in the next day and then eat it the next day? No. They were, as much as evil they were, they were still very religious people, very religious. They would have killed the lamb on the same um, uh, time that God commanded them to kill the lamb. And it would have been virtually impossible to kill the lamb on Thursday evening and then eat the lamb on Friday evening. First of all, they didn't have freezers back then. Secondly, that would be again as God's command because the command is clearly is that you kill it, you roast it, you eat it. So how come? Furthermore, in John 19, verse 14, it was says, Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And again, if you read this carefully through the narrative of the Gospel of John, you will find that this um, event took place on Friday just before Jesus was crucified. The sixth hour means 12 p.m. Friday. And by the way, this makes perfect sense because in the Old Testament prophecies, repeatedly would say that Jesus would be crucified exactly the same day that the Passover lambs were slaughtered. And we know that Jesus was crucified when? Friday evening. It's no brainer. Everybody knows this. And it's true. He it was crucified on Friday evening. And so the lambs would have had to be slaughtered that same time on Friday. In fact, it is not just in the same day, but remember how we said that the lambs would, ha would have had to be slaughtered in the evening? It was precisely the same time when Jesus was hung on a cross. In other words, as the priests were slaughtering the lamb on Friday evening, that was exactly the same time that Jesus was on the cross being slaughtered. How amazing. So precise. 
But here is a dilemma now. How could it be that Jesus would celebrate the Passover on Thursday evening and yet at the same time the lambs were killed on Friday evening? Does that mean there's a contradiction in the scripture? Absolutely not. How do we reconcile this? Very simple. We just need to understand contextually. Historical context matters. You see, at the time of Jesus, different regions in Israel identified the beginning and end of the day differently. Let me help you understand what, what I mean by that. You know how now we have uh, STD times? You know, there's um, uh, Australian Eastern Standard Time. I don't know. There's Western Australian Standard Time. And each country, in, fa in fact, not just each country, each region in a country could have different timing. Well, in the ancient time, they had a version of this kind of. So the northern region of Israel, where Judea was, uh, sorry, where uh, Galilee was, where Jesus was from, they counted days from sunrise to sunrise. And the southern regions of Israel, which is Judea, where the temple was, they counted the days from sunset to the following sunset. Right? So for Jesus and his disciples were Galileans, right? And so they considered the Passover day to begin from Thursday sunrise to Friday sunrise, and therefore they could have the Passover meal on Thursday evening. And they have no problem with that. And yet, for the religious leaders who were from Judea, they considered the Passover day to begin from Thursday sunset to Friday sunset. And so for them to have the Passover meal on Friday evening makes perfect sense. And while there was confusion at the time, absolutely, you can just imagine the kind of confusion that would have caused, but they had absolutely no problem with that. Because how in the world are they going to be able to um, slaughter those thousands of animals? And uh, you can just imagine the, the crowd that filled up the temple at that time had all regions considered um, the time of the priests themselves. So the priests at that time said, okay, good. We, ha we, we, we cut um, the slaughtering of the lambs into two days. Uh, beautiful. Easy, easy on the crowds, easy on the priests, and they could do it. So they had no problem with that. So Jesus got to fulfill his earnest desire, desire and observe the feast on Thursday evening, while yet at the same time, God got all the Old Testament prophecies that pointed to the exact day and time for Jesus to be slaughtered to the letter. He got it fulfilled. Wow. Can you imagine how fascinating it is? Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. Jesus had to keep the Passover with His disciples because that was His earnest desire. And yet at the same time, he had to die on Friday. He had to be crucified on Friday because that's when the Jerusalem Passover lambs would be killed. How could this happen? 
How could Jesus keep the Passover in order to fulfill his desire and yet be the Passover lamb? Meaning to be slaughtered on the same day and time as the Passover lambs were slaughtered? How can this be done? Behold, the, the invisible hand of a sovereign God who orchestrates circumstances of life. Is it not true that with God all things are possible? And so yes, the religious leaders and Judas were wanted to kill Jesus and they are held accountable for such atrocity. But Jesus was never a victim of evil men. Never. He's always victorious. Acts 2.23 says, This man delivered over by what? By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Jesus' death was not an accident. Jesus' death was not orchestrated by men. It was orchestrated by God. Predetermined plan. Before the foundation of the world, it was already in the mind of God how and in what manner Jesus would die, even when Jesus would die. This little passage teaches us that Jesus is anything but a victim. Brothers, sisters, friends, Jesus is God. He is Yahweh in flesh. And he rules history, traditions, and customs, and even the smallest details of all molecules. And even in this passage, it tells us that Jesus is able to maneuver and change even the traditions of men in order to have his desires fulfilled. He has authority over redemption. So if you have seen he has all power to forgive you. And Jesus has authority over life. And here, Jesus has authority over history. Well, as way of conclusion, I want to ask this question and I'm going to just give you some reflection, which is beautiful. We're going to go deeper into the heart of this passage as well. I want to ask the question, what was Jesus' earnest desire that he wanted to fulfill. Why did Jesus want to keep this Passover so earnestly with his disciples? Why? Answer? Because not only is he sovereign over redemption, over life, and over history, but this ruler, this majestic Lord is such a loving Savior. Why did he want to keep this Passover? I want you to have a look, please. Would you turn to John 13 as the opening of the Passover takes place? The curtains are now opened and God in his Loving, sovereign wisdom wants us to enter into the very heart of Christ so that to show us what was his earnest desire. And verse 1, John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing 
that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. Earnest desire. Now, why is it his desire so earnest? It says this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Brothers, sisters, this is the opening to the Passover. Jesus wanted to keep it because he's such a loving Savior. He turned this feast into the Lord's table so that we're reminded of how much he loves us. Jesus, when he, when he um, kept this last Passover with his disciples, it was to turn this Old Testament ritual into a wonderful poem that every time we have the Lord's table, we are reminded that he loved us to the end, that he shed his blood joyfully, willingly, voluntarily in order to save us. And we, every time we have that Lord's Supper, we are reminded of his love for us. Not only that, his earnest desire shows us that he is such a humble servant. Why is that? What did he do? What did he do? After the scripture tells us that he loved his own to the end. He girded himself with a towel. He stooped down and he started washing and scrubbing and cleaning his dirty feet. Of his own disciples. Lifting them up. Saying I think not of my own. I think of you. Of cleansing you. Of serving you. And you know what? When we launch into eternity. And though. The best and the most godly of us. Would have in his heart this desire. To say. Jesus, I want to serve you for eternity, but guess who will forever be the greatest servant of all? The most humble servant of all. It will always be Jesus. Always. Jesus is not going to be some lazy God who sits on a throne for eternity to come. God forbid that we think of him that way. Yes, he's worthy of all glory. Yes, he's worthy of all honor and all power and we will worship him for eternity. But yet at the same time, guess who will be upholding the world with the word of his power? Guess who will cause you to continue to grow in your joy towards him for eternity to come? Guess who will be upholding heaven and a new earth and will continue to cause the birds of the air to fly and breath in your lungs for eternity to come? Guess who will feed you with eternal food for eternity to come? Guess who will cause you to have wonderful taste buds and activate them every time you eat something beautiful in the new earth? It will always be Jesus, the greatest servant of all. He's such a humble servant. He's such a loving savior. Not only is he all authoritative over every aspect of life and death, but what a loving Savior Jesus is. You have him and you have everything. You don't need anything else but Christ. 
What a wonderful song that we sang this morning. How it says, how wonderful, how marvelous my song will ever be. How wonderful, how marvelous is my Savior love for me. May we sing this song from our hearts. Or another, yet another song is beautiful. It says, let us, it says, my heart is filled with thankfulness. To him who reigns above, whose wisdom is my perfect peace, whose every thought is love, for every day I have on earth is given by the king. So I will give my life, my all, to love and follow him. Brothers, when we sit back and exercise our faculty of imagination and begin to go and dive deep in knowing the extent of God's love for us in Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you. You haven't driven deep enough. You haven't gone deep enough. You haven't yet exhausted the depth of God's love for us, his people in Christ Jesus. And we pray that we would not be lazy Christians who would say, oh, look, I'm in the center of the world. Great. Jesus is serving me. He should because I'm great. He ought to serve me. No. The true, regenerated, born again child of God as he ponders upon this true, wonderful love of Christ, would have to respond by saying, God, help me to love him back. Help me to follow Christ out of a heart that is full of thankfulness and gratitude. Amen. And if you have not yet come to a saving faith, oh, how I plead with you. Stop believing this deception, this false lie that there is something greater than Christ that you would rely upon. Jesus alone is able to give you eternal life. He died and rose again to save sinners from hell, from death. You just heard about his love and yet at the same time, his power to save. Why don't you just come to him now? Believe in him now. Jesus. I want to remind you once again, has come to lazy people, to save the most stubborn people, to save the most arrogant people, to save the most selfish and the most coward people. Are you coward? Are you selfish? Are you stubborn? Are you arrogant? It is for those kind of people that Jesus came and gave his life for. Would you come to him? Relying not on your own goodness, nor waiting for one day where you just get a zap and you say, all right, now I like to read the Bible, therefore I come to Christ. No, even while your heart is full of hatred towards him and you're full of boredom when you open the word of God, take this as the very evidence why you need Christ and come to him and say, accept me. Be the very lamb that was slaughtered on my behalf. Forgive me. Change me. See God while he may be found. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, yet again, Jesus is exalted in this passage, just like all other passages in the scripture. And we pray, Father,
that as we leave this room, that Jesus, that we would say with absolute confidence that Jesus is mine. Jesus is mine. He lives in me. He dwells within me. I know my Savior, and my Savior knows me. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.